Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. Make It Kind. M I P. With Masamela Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, of course, we are all celebrating Black History Month. And in Make It Plain, we've chose to celebrate it partially by acknowledging a group of institutions that have the very name history in their names. The HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, and of course, they're even more so in the focus these days because we have someone in the White House for the first time who is an HBCU graduate. You all have heard me talk about my relationship to HBCUs, literally born on the campus of one and raised on the campus of another, and then attending two of them uh, myself. These are our sacred institutions. I'm excited about our guest today and thankful for him because there can't be too much ever published about HBCU history. There ought to be uh, much more. And he's even, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can definitely judge his by its title. And we're thankful for that. So to kick off this first Friday, and we'll be having these conversations uh, every Friday. I want to thank our producer, Brittany Temple, uh, for shepherding and developing uh, this idea. And again, an example of just um, how much more interest there is in HBCUs these days because of Kamala Harris. Uh, we want to welcome, again, the title of this book is, is a great title, Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. Indeed, we are happy to have with us Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. Dr. Jelani M. Favors joins Make It Plain for Black History Month. Hey, brother, how are you, man? I'm doing great, man. Great to be with you, and thanks for the invitation to have this conversation. It, it's an it's an honor to have you. Uh, I just want to acknowledge some of your you you, uh, uh, Dr. Favors. You got your PhD in history, 
and an MA in African-American studies from the Ohio State University. Where'd you go undergrad, brother? North Carolina A&T State University. Aggie and HBCU. <laughs> Aggie pride. Indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, history is closer than we think. I noticed, too, folks, that um, at one time uh, he was a Mellon, had a Mellon HBCU fellowship at the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute. Um, my mother was uh, an administrative employee at Fisk University for over 30 years while I was raised uh, and was very close to Dr. Franklin. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, you know, and, and you see that stuff and you think about it, you know, wow, these are people who we actually knew and walked the earth. And, you know, we think about HBCUs in the con- in the relative context, 150 years is not a very long time in our history. So again, we're thankful for you writing this. I, I want to set the tone, even from the title, Shelter in a Time of Storm. Help our under- audience understand what the storm was that was going on that prompted even a discussion about building institutions for higher learning for our people. Absolutely. Again, thanks for having me. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid from the South, man. And, you know, uh, when I was in grad school and, and trying to work my way through the uh, um, intellectual ideas of this project uh, and, and a title for the project, I leaned on an old gospel song, right? Shelter in a time of storm. Uh, and, and that's exactly, as you said, this is exactly what these institutions have been going back to 1837 with the founding of the Institute of Colored Youth. Uh, on up into the antebellum era, the 1850s, and the founding of Wilberforce and Lincoln. Um, these were institutions that, uh, as racial violence exploded on the scene in American life, as African Americans' uh, um, civil and human rights were being stripped from them, um, premium, space was at a premium. Uh, you know, where could they go to, to, to be edified? Where could they go to get direction? Where could they go to get uh, um, a counter message? Um, that that um, uh, that they were not inferior, that they were not sambos, that they were not coons, uh, and, and and HBCUs became that type of space. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things and one of the reasons why I wanted to start that story off um, with Cheney State University, also known as the Institute for Colored Youth, is that so many folks think that the North was some sort of paradise, that you know, black folks escaped from slavery and you know made their way to the North, and you know, the North was some sort of you know, a, a redeeming space for black people. But there were race riots in the streets of Philadelphia. There were race riots in the streets, streets of, of New York. Black folks were fighting to remain free. So even in the North, we needed these shelters, right? These spaces uh, where, where, again, black youth um, could be empowered uh, and more importantly, be equipped with a vision uh, to try to uh, deconstruct white supremacy where they found it. And so Cheney was the very first one, correct? Well, you know, that's an ongoing debate uh, with, with between Cheney and, and, and Lincoln and Wilberforce. Right, right. uh, <laughs> Cheney, the Institute for Colored Youth, as it was founded, was, was founded in 1837. Um, Lincoln prides himself on the fact that they are the first degree-granting institution uh, that granted degrees to, to Black folks, and it was founded in 1856, I believe. Uh, and then you have Wilberforce, that says, hold the phone, you know, we're the first school that that was actually founded by black people uh, because it was founded by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. Lincoln for years was run by by white folks. 
right. from the board of trustees down to to the to the educators and the faculty members. So um, so they they constantly go back and forth on who's the real first HBCU. But for the purposes of the study, I knew that I wanted to open up in 1837 by telling the story of people like Ebenezer Bassett and Octavius Caddo and Fannie Jackson Coppin because they epitomize. Uh, the best of what HBCUs were going to stand for, not just in 1837, but moving forward for years to come. Well, talk to us about some of those personalities and and the three of them um, and, and what they did and and how they got the temerity to even say, we got to have our own institutions. Right. Well, I mean, again, I think what it represents is that from the very beginning, there was a blueprint right, uh, of what black education could and should be. Right. This wasn't going to be the, uh, the same space as Yale and Harvard and William and Mary and a number of the other early institutions that were in existence. This was going to be a space that was deeply and directly connected to the freedom dreams of black people. Uh, and it was going to not just, again, teach them Greek and Latin and, and, and history and science. Uh, it was going to teach them that, that they were to be cultural change agents. They were to be political change agents for their community. So uh, when someone like Ebenezer Bassett arrives on the scene, you know, there's a great story I tell in, in, in the opening of that, uh, that first chapter where, uh, and other historians have documented this as well. Uh, but when John Brown, right, the white abolitionist, is, is captured, um, he has written in his pocket a list of people and places that kind of like safe houses, places where he can go uh, and people he can lean on if indeed this plan went awry. And of course, it did go awry. And one of the names in, in, in that on that list was Ebenezer Bassett, who was the principal and the head of the Institute for Color Youth. So that lets you know immediately that people understood that, that these black colleges, these black institutions of higher learning, as I said before, were deeply and directly connected to the freedom dreams of black people. And they were indeed serving as a shelter in a time of storm. Black folks knew that. John Brown himself knew that uh, and leaned on that. And, but but from Ebenezer Bassett, you get a whole cast of, of characters emerging here. Uh, Jacob White Jr., Octavius Caddo, again, Fannie Jackson Coppin, who comes from Oberlin and serves as the next principal of that institution after uh, uh, Ebenezer Bassett. Um, you know, these are folks who are, are radicals. They're, these are folks who are activists. Um, Jacob White and Octavius Caddo helped to write petitions uh, uh, that were presented before Congress arguing for the 14th and 15th Amendments. So, again, the black folks were using these educational spaces to argue for citizenship, to argue for suffrage for African-American men. Um, again, they, they are the epitome and they are the... Uh, uh, one of the perfect uh, illustrations of how black institutions were connected to to the idea of deconstructing white supremacy and forming a more better and more tolerant society. Octavius Cattle, tell us his story as well, if you would. He was murdered. He was murdered. And, and, and you know, as a graduate student, not even as a graduate student, when I finished my, my Ph.D. and my, my academic advisor and mentor at Ohio State was Dr. Hassan Jeffries. And it was Dr. Jeffries who encouraged me to, and Dr. Jeffries, by the way, is author of Bloody Lounge, uh, which talks about um, the Black Power Movement in, in Lowndes County, Alabama, a brilliant historian and, and again, my mentor. Um, but it was Dr. Jeffries who encouraged me to, to expand the story and try to tell not just the story of two institutions, which is what I had done for my dissertation, but to try to, to hit the home run and tell this broader story 
of what black colleges have represented. And so immediately the question became, well, where, do, where does the story begin? Who do I, what, what institutions do I begin to include in that? And when I ran across and read the story of Octavius Caddo, I, I knew from the, from the start that this is where the book begins, right? Because again, it illustrates everything that these institu institutions stood for. Octavius Caddo um, is a young student at the Institute for Colored Youth. He is mentored and shaped by people like Ebenezer Bassett. Uh, and he graduates and he becomes a, a professor himself at the institution. Uh, but again, what's the spirit of that institution? What is that institution cultivating amongst the students? As a student, he had been taught to, again, hitch his future to the freedom dreams of Black folk. And, and now as a professor, he was molding his own students in that same type of tradition. Uh, and so, again, he's writing petitions uh, to, 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 to the Congress uh, uh, about, again, why the, it's necessary to have a 14th and a 15th Amendment protecting the humanity and civil rights of black folks, as well as, again, giving African-American men the right to vote. But he's a he's a renaissance man. This guy was a, 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 a writer. He was a leader within the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, which is one of the earlier civil rights organizations in, in the North. Um, he was a, a, a standout second baseman for a Philadelphia black baseball team. Uh, and so it, he was. He was an incredible figure. And, and I mentioned this in the book. And as I've said before, other historians have documented this. But when he's assassinated um, by a white supremacist, uh, um, he, he uh, his funeral is the second largest funeral that came through the city of Philadelphia behind Abraham Lincoln uh, in terms of the procession, in terms of the people who turned out. The community loved this man. Uh, and and revered this man, uh, and and the students openly weep um, for Octavius Cattle being cut down by the the bullet of of a white supremacist assassin. So um, he has a, a very important uh, legacy and a, a long shadow in the early civil rights movement in Philadelphia, and certainly uh, really epitomizes what the Institute for Colored Youth and what Cheney State University would be about would stand for for years to come. So even at that early time, there was education for liberation going on. It, it, it wasn't just um, education for education's sake. I mean, oh. there was a level of wokeness and consciousness taking place, correct? Without question, without question. And you know, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't mention this. The Institute for Colored Youth was founded in 1837. But even prior to that, you had these African free schools, which often existed in, in cities like New York. And, and there was even a, 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 a uh, emerging one in Philadelphia. So again, the idea of black folks looking at education as sort of a figurative messiah, something that they could use to uplift themselves in society and to equip them to be successful in society was again, directly linked to the idea of also equipping our students with the ability to articulate on behalf of the black masses, right? To articulate, I mean, remember, you know, most black folks were, were illiterate. Most white folks were illiterate in the 19th and 20th century. So literacy was not something which was commonplace in America for a number of years. And so HBCUs, black colleges from the from their inception knew that this simply wasn't about literacy in the sense that we're going to, again, provide them training as, as future mathematicians and, and scientists and, 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 and lawyers, right? But also that we're going to provide them with the type of skill set and, and the ability to articulate on behalf of black people. And again, this is why the ICY, the Institute for Color Youth, is so 
such an important uh, um, example of, of how this unfolds. Again, you see young students being trained in this in this way. You also see something that I, I talk about throughout the book is that these spaces open themselves up to to an endless caravan of black leaders and black activists who made their way into these institutions, who gave guest speeches. You had Frederick Douglass coming to speak at the Institute for Colored Youth. You had Henry Highland Garnett coming to speak at the Institute for Colored Youth. Those ty that type of interaction and matter in, in producing the type of students that would emerge from these institutions. So, um, you know, one of the concepts, and I'm assuming we'll, perhaps we'll get into this later on, but I talk, I use the, the terminology of communitas, um, which is a, a phrase which I borrow from a, a cultural anthropologist by the name of Victor Turner. Uh, but the reason why I use that, one, uh, um, one of my colleagues had read an earlier draft, and he was the one who really introduced me to, to, to Victor Turner, saying, you know, you should read some, some, some cultural anthropology, think about different ways to describe space. Because what is very clear, Mark, is that HBCUs, as I said before, uh, the Institute for Colored Youth was not the same type of space as a Harvard or a Yale. And, and by that, I don't simply mean in terms of the resources and, and the type of elite nature that we often attach to those institutions. But as, as one institution or as PWIs, we're promoting white supremacy, right? We're promoting the idea of, uh, of teaching that reconstruction was a horrible mistake. There is a counter message that is going on within the spaces of HBCUs. And again, that mess, those messages, they empowered and pushed black youth to, to deconstruct white supremacy, to see themselves as, as, as weapons against Jim Crow, even as those things were really beginning to crystallize in the 19th and early 20th century. You had first earlier mentioned about, um, you know, there were HBCUs that were founded by African-Americans, but we also know um, there were whites who founded some of these schools uh, and ran them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I'm right about, I mentioned Fisk, uh, some of them name it Howard. Um, what was going on there? Were those founded by these whites, a missionary otherwise, were they as um, radicalized or to use the term you introduced, communitized as the Institute for Colored Youth started out being? Yeah, without question. And, you know, again, this becomes one of the, the issues that, that I deal with, um, you know, in the book. And this is where the concept of communitas becomes so important, is that you have a carving out of a space. Right? And as you mentioned, there are a number of white philanthropists who are who, who should get the, the credit for carving out that space. Again, black folks are emerging out of slavery, for the, where they had been enslaved for the last 200 years and, and just lacked the material resources to build many of these institutions. So it took a number of white benefactors um, to really carve out the space to help build the buildings. But once those spaces are erected, and this is where the, the, the next part of my, 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 my theorizing comes forward in the book, I talk about this idea of a second curriculum. Right? It's, it's an energy, it's a pedagogy that flows within these institutions. And it's not always distributed and administered simply by the faculty. So in a situation like Lincoln, right, or a situation like some of these earlier on, these the AMA schools, the American Missionary Association, which founded Fisk, which founded Talladega, which founded Tougaloo and, and, and Morehouse, right, these Baptist institutions that emerged. Yes, they are constructed by white folks. In some cases, they're even run by white folks, but black folks have a certain vision for what they want for themselves, 
right? And how they can see these their education again being used and even weaponized against white supremacy. And so the second curriculum begins to flow through these institutions, right? And so when I talk about the second curriculum, it's really comprised of, of I argue, three things, race consciousness, cultural nationalism, and idealism, right? And again, this is something I talk about in the introduction of the book, but you know, James Weldon Johnson talks about being a student at Morehouse in the early 20th century. And he said, look, everything that we talked about, everything that we dealt with, it's centered around race, right? And race permeated through the institution. It was the subject of essays and, and debates and conversations in, in the dorms and across what Black folks would call the yard, right? You know, being on the yard. And so, um, you know, it shows a sort of race-centered space being crafted and developed where, again, even though some of these institutions are, are run by white folks and controlled by white folks, the issue that is at the foremost in the minds of, of young black folks is how can we deconstruct this system, which has been weaponized against us? Again, Jim Crow society, white supremacy, racial violence is exploding um, throughout the early 20th century. Uh, and, and black folks understand that this space is going to be critical in, in, in training. Uh, you know, HBCUs are founded really to train two professions, ministers and teachers. Right? And so the early ministers are coming out of these institutions. Um, the early teachers right, are coming out of these institutions. And if indeed um, they had embraced the idea that they were inferior, if they had embraced the idea that they were uh, uh, somehow um, not mentally equipped to be successful in society, then, you know, <laughs> we would have had generations of young black folks who who were really a, a, a disservice to, to Black America. But that's not what we had. We have generations of, of young Black folks emerging from HBCUs who were um, legendary activists, outspoken in their fields, and found ways to advance the freedom dreams of Black folks for, for a number of generations. We have a chapter entitled Black and Tan uh, Academia. What do you mean by that? So black the Black and Tan conventions were conventions that emerged uh, in places like Mississippi, um, Louisiana, uh, in the Deep South, where uh, in the midst of Reconstruction, uh, you have Black folks, Black men in particular, who are being elected into political positions for the very first time. Uh, and in many cases, they are um, shouldering the load now, standing side by side, a number of white colleagues, white peers. Uh, the overwhelming majority of those in the South, of course, were um, racist uh, Southern Democrats which, of course, was the ruling party of the South at the time. But you also had a number of, of white Republicans. Right. And so that actually that term terminology emerged as sort of a an, a derisive slur. Right. Uh, people will often refer to the black and tan conventions as black folks and white people who are really, you know, uh, um, uh, friends to black folks coming and developing these relationships in an effort to try to push forward a, a more progressive agenda in the Deep South during the Reconstruction era. So black and tan was, uh, again, originally intended to be a slur uh, against those type of relationships being formed. But again, without these black and tan conventions, we don't get a, a Southern university, right, which was founded literally uh, um, by uh, many of these, these black politicians who developed these convenient um, relationships with a number of, of white political activists who also believe that, hey, black folks need schools. And, and that, you know, we need to construct these type of spaces. So, um, so yeah, when I, I say black and tan academia, uh, again, I'm talking about the relationship, the cre relationships that created that space. Again, Tougaloo is an example of that. 
where again, you have the AMA, which is an organization which is run mostly by white folks, creating Fisk, creating Talladega, creating Tougaloo. But you also have within that space, black folks, as I said earlier, um, they have a vision of freedom all on their own. And they know exactly how they want to pursue this, how they can pursue it uh, in the safest way, because clearly Mississippi was the belly of the beast and one of the most violent states in the union. Uh, in terms of racial violence and, and white terrorism. And they understood that it was going to take a clandestine approach. It was going to take a subtle approach if indeed they want to survive and push their efforts forward. Another chapter, race women. And you talk about new Negro politics um, and some what of how things became radicalized, even at, at Bennett College. That's very interesting. Talk to us about that as well and, and the role that, that women we're playing at this time. One of my favorite chapters, Mark. Um, you know, I, I so I, I got I took a fellowship in 2013 at Duke University. Um, it was, as you mentioned, the um, Humanities Writ Large Fellowship. Uh, prior to that, it had been a Mellon Fellow in 2009. But Duke invited me back to to put the finishing touches on his book in, in 2013, um, and. Originally, that chapter was supposed to be on Howard University. <laughs> uh, so I was going to write a chapter on Howard University. That was the last chapter that had not yet been fully written. And, and so I, I came to do with full intentions of beginning my research into Howard. And one of my colleagues who was also a fellow that year, um, Yolanda. Yolanda was teaching at, at Bennett at the time, and she and I were having lunch. And she said, she said to me, you know, everybody always talks about Howard. Nobody ever talks about Bennett. And, and somebody needs to tell Bennett's story. And I, I looked at it and I said, you know what? You're right. And this, was, this is a golden opportunity for me to tell the story of what was going on at Bennett College uh, in the early 20th century and to fill in that gap. But also, as you mentioned, to dedicate an entire chapter to talking about the, how Black women were, were being educated during this era and how they, too, were not just two, but they were probably the most important weapons against white supremacy during this era. Uh, and, and so that that chapter took off and, and I'm so glad that I, I did it. It's it's one of my favorite chapters uh, for a lot of folks who've read the book. Many of them comment that it's one of their favorite chapters as well. Um, David Dallas Jones, Bennett becomes a single sex institution in 1926. Um, they, they hire as their president a man by the name of David Dallas Jones, who uh, became the president there. And, and he was a race man. And so many former black, he was also a Morehouse man. <laughs> but, you know, again, this, that, that's a legacy and a testament to the type of educational leaders that were being produced. These were race men and race women who then went on to lead race men and race women and help cultivate race men and race women. So when David Dallas Jones arrives in Greensboro in 1926, you know, one, there are a couple of things working in his favor. Greensboro is slightly progressive. Um, and I do mean slightly, <laughs> uh, it still was in the Jim Crow South. Uh, but he used that space to his, to his advantage to um, help mold and to shape generations of young black women who saw themselves again as, as weapons against white supremacy. And, and he made, he pulled no punches. Right? He, he would openly say that this is, this is what we're doing. This, this is what our job should be as educators, creating women and creating young men like the ones that we're, that we're creating at, at Bennett College. And out of this, you see a litany of young black women activists. Again, many of them went on to become educators themselves. Uh, many of them went on to teach themselves. And again, in that capacity, they're molding and shaping the next generation 
of young black folks. But again, when you think about the power of HBCUs, right? You know, again, Dr. David Dallas Jones is good friends with Mary McLeod Bethune, right? It makes it matters when someone like Mary McLeod Bethune can come through your institution, your campus, and begin to also shape and mold, right? Ella Baker is, is invited to come address and to come speak to students at Bennett College. Not only that, but David Dallas Jones actually offers her a job. <laughs> David Dallas Jones was so impressed with her fervor and her passion um, for, for, for civil rights and activism. He says, hey, we need you here at Bennett. Again, these are the type of spaces um, that, that Bennett would be and HBCUs would be. Again, shelters in a time of storm where we can see these type of folks circulating and touching the, the young black masses and in doing so, um, giving them a vision to run with. And, and again, that's that's the legacy of Bennett. And, and so again, that new Negro, that, that era of the new Negro from the 1920s and 30s into the 1940s, these were some of the most radicalized periods on HBCU campuses, especially feeding into that that World War II era where really radicalism and activism really begins to explode on college campuses, HBCUs that is, um, throughout the Deep South. So this is something that has always interested me and, and you're, you're the history professor, so maybe you can help and, and kind of reconcile this. At what point in the chronology of, of our HBCU history does the debate between Du Bois and Booker T. Washington become most prevalent, if, if at all, because, you know, the snapshot always says, well, you know, Du Bois was arguing for a certain type of education. Booker T was arguing for another. But but just how significant was that was that and what impact did it have uh, on the development and the growth of our HBCUs? So in terms of uh, chronology, we're talking late 19th and early 20th century. I'll be honest with you, Mark. I often think that that argument is overplayed. We gravitate towards and celebrate what a number of past historians often refer to as great man history, right? We, we, we want to focus on the great men of society who have shaped our society. And again, this is by, by, by no means trying to diminish the legacy of Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, who were titans in the field of, 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 of in, in the narrative of African-American history. Um, but, you know, what both of these men were doing, essentially, were carving out space. Right, space that they thought would be most beneficial to advancing the freedom dreams of, of black folks. Again, for Booker T. Washington, you know, he he's tasked to go into Tuskegee. And I, I don't know if, if, if too many of your listeners have ever been to Tuskegee, but if you've ever been to Tuskegee, Alabama, it is in the middle of nowhere. Right? So, I mean, you know, get in a time machine with me and go back to the, the, the late 19th century and envision someone like Booker T. Washington, who was a graduate of, of Hampton Institute, being tasked to go down into the to the hinterlands uh, of, of Alabama and, and to carve out a space where young black folks could be educated. He understood and knew that, you know, that can't we, we can't make an overt message attacking white supremacy because black life was inconsequential um, to white folks in the state of Alabama. Black folks were being lynched. Uh, and, and terrorized uh, and brutalized. Uh, and so, again, he very conveniently and some would argue even pragmatically began to say, look, you know what? What I'm going to try to do is cultivate a, a relationship, a friendship with white folks in order to secure the dollars that will carve and create this space. And, and in doing so, provide room for, for young black folks to, to be educated. Now, again, he's criticizing, and, and I would say rightfully so, 
um, and, and, and being extremely um, gracious toward his white benefactors. Of course, you know, I live in Atlanta and, you know, it's, it's in Piedmont Park, a very popular park in Atlanta where Booker T. Washington gives his very famous speech, um, his, his exposition speech, where he's, he literally stands before a crowd of white folks and say, look, you know, we can be as, as one as a hand, but as separate as the fingers. And, and again, a lot of people say, hey, you are, are embracing and celebrating segregation. Booker T. Washington, not Booker T. Washington, but Du Bois would, would be one of his largest critics. But I think also what he's doing is that, again, he's carving out space. Right. You know, and, and I talk about this in the chapter on Tougaloo. Booker T. Washington also was a large proponent of creating all black towns. Right. Mound Bayou in Mississippi is supported uh, um, through uh, uh, um, through people like Booker T. Washington, who says, yes, this is exactly what we need. Carve out our space. And, and I guess a way that we could look at that in 2021 is that Booker T. Washington is literally saying, look, we need to get away from some these white folks. They're crazy. Right. They're engaging in terrorism against our people. Right? Racial violence is exploding. Right. Don't mess with these white folks. Let's carve out our own space. And, and again, the legacy of that is that people like Marcus Garvey would adhere to those messages. People like the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad would adhere to those messages. They embrace many of the teachings of what Booker T. Washington was arguing. And so in, in my book, again, I talk about the second curriculum. This falls under the, the, the concepts of cultural nationalism, right? The black folks understood the importance of building space and supporting black institutions, supporting black organizations, supporting black businesses. These are all the type of things that people like, like Booker T. Washington argued for. Now, again, conversely, Du Bois is saying, hey, let's carve out space, but we need a, as he, you know, very popularly, popularly uh, argue, we need a, a talented tenth, right? And a lot of folks look at that as elitism. Right. You know, but he's saying that, hey, you know, everybody can't be, you know, carpenters and brick masons and domestics and and, and all these other professions that are being uh, promoted at a place like Tuskegee. We need some folks who, again, can articulate and fight for for black rights in, in, in the halls of political power within America. We need lawyers and activists and and, and, and writers uh, and thinkers. Right. Uh, philosophers. Uh, young philosophers emerging from these institutions. So yes, Washington and 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 Du Bois are kind of going back and forth here, um, but it's 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 really about about space. There's a survey that I came across from a parent uh, in Mississippi. They, I can't remember the institute that actually commissioned this survey, but they did a survey of Black parents asking them what type of education they would prefer. Right? Do you want vocational training? Right? The Booker T. Washington method, or do you want the uh, uh, um, the, 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 the talented 10th, right? The idea of a more Victorian, uh, um, a liberal arts training promoted by people like, like Du Bois. And one of the parents responded and said, look, you know what? I don't care what kind of education my son and daughter gets. I know I just don't want them to be a sharecropper like me, right? You know, so I want them to, to have opportunity to carve out a different path, um, for themselves. And I think that's the most important legacy of those two men, carving out space so the black folks can make some decisions uh, um, that freed them um, from the, the, the peonage and from the bondage that they experienced in the Deep South. Very, very important. Um, folks, this book is great, and I encourage you uh, to read it. And, and thank you for that. Um, um, I, I, you don't mind, I, I'm going to borrow that as we talk about that going forward. What would you, the, the, what'd you call it, the great man view? A great man theory. Uh, great man theory, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're right, we do that too much. It's yeah, too, we do. 
So, <laughs> I mean, you know, Mark, we love messianic figures. Yeah. We love the idea of, of Dr. King riding in on a white horse and saving folks. But what we miss are, are the grassroots activists, the, the, the yeomen, the laborers who really push this movement forward. And again, that doesn't diminish someone like a Booker T. Washington or right. a Boyce or someone like a Dr. King right. or even, you know, someone like a Rosa Parks. But again, we love these messianic figures, but we miss the, the, the larger picture of the fact that Black folks were, were struggling and striving and fighting to to gain their freedom. And there are a number of 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 no name folks, right, who we've never heard of, who play critical roles in, in, in shaping the, the future of, of black America. And I think that's one of the things that I really want to try to do with the book is to bring some of these folks you've never heard of. Again, educators, teachers, um, faculty members at HBCUs who were just as important to advancing the freedom dreams of black folks as some of these these great legendary figures that we often venerate and celebrate. Uh, and I appreciate that. Not only that, though, but, um, you know, sometimes we make messianic even the institutions themselves. Like we started out talking about Howard. One of the things I appreciate about your book, I mean, Howard is known as the Mecca, so to speak. <laughs> you Look, you lift up uh, 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 Cheney and Tougaloo and, and, and Bennett. Uh, Alabama State, Jackson State, Southern, uh, and your alma mater, A&T, because there's a lot of history there, a transformative history that people don't know. People know about the great Howard University protests, but there was these kind of things that were going on in other um, uh, cities and states and other HBCUs um, as well. So before we go, um, give us your uh, thoughts about the significance of having an HBCU alum um, a heartbeat away from the presidency and what that says about the cumulative journey of our HBCU institutions and what they've imparted to us and what has been produced from them. Well, I mean, I think you said it. It's definitely, it's a cumulative journey, right? You know, and, and I think that, that, um, Vice President Kamala Harris would, would echo the same sentiment is that um, you see her success. Um, but what you what you don't see is the legacy of folks who made that possible. Right. Um, and these institutions are part of that journey um, and, and not just in creating a Kamala Harris. But as I argue, Mark, and I've said this in a couple of other interviews and, and talks that I've given now on, on HBCUs, the most important contribution. You know, we talk about we celebrate the cultural pageantry of black colleges. We love to talk about the black college bands and the step shows and 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 the energy. Right. We, you know, this is the era where we love to talk about black boy joy and black excellence. And, and yes, these institutions have become spaces where all of that can run free. And that's critically important. Right. But the most important contributions that these institutions have made uh, in their long histories have been reshaping and shaping the social and political contours of America. There would be no civil rights movement, either the early or the modern civil rights movement, had it not been for black colleges. And again, this is not diminishing the legacy of the black church and other institutions and, and organizations who have played critical roles in producing leaders, but HBCUs are one of the cornerstones of the black freedom movement in America. And we don't get a Kamala Harris if we don't have a Diane Nash. Right? We don't get a Kamala Harris if we don't have an Ella Baker. We don't get a, a Kamala Harris if we don't have a Jesse Jackson. 
right? You know, who runs his campaign uh, in the 1980s, who's a graduate of, of North Carolina Anti-State University. We don't get a, a Kamala Harris if we don't have a, a John Lewis. I love that story that Barack Obama tells about writing in, in uh, the program when he was inaugurated, uh, writing in John Lewis's program, uh, 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 inauguration program, thank you, right? You know, with, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but again, there would be no me without you, right? And so again, when you look at the legacy of institutions like Fisk, institutions like North Carolina A&T, institutions like, like Howard University and Florida A&M, and as you said before, some of the, the lesser known institutions, Alabama State, Alcorn, you know, these are institutions which, which paved that path for us to have a Kamala Harris. And, and it never was simply about uh, producing black leaders and black excellence who would go on and, and, and uh, uh, succumb to the trappings of, of hyper capitalism and embrace, you know, um, uh, uh, materialism and, and elitism. But it was always about young black leaders understanding that they have a connection and a responsibility to the masses of black people. Right. Ella Baker talks about this and Barbara Ransby's great biography on, on Ella Baker really kind of uh, lays out the type of education that a woman like Ella Baker received at Shaw University. And she talks about the fact that, hey, when I was at Shaw, it was always about service. It was always about maintaining this connection to the masses. Um, Howard Thurman talks about that in his experiences as a young student. And we're talking about the great theologian uh, and philosopher Howard Thurman. Uh, um, who, who talks about when he was a student in Morehouse, those same type of messages were in, in embedded within him. So it was always about this connection with the masses and moving black folks collectively, not just black the black elite, not just the lettered, not just the, those black folks who were alumni of these institutions, not just moving them forward, but moving the black masses. And so my hope for, for Vice President Kamala Harris moving forward, and I have full faith and trust that she will uh, continue that legacy. And, and understand um, that that she is um, not an island unto herself. That she's a product of an institution like like Howard University. Um, she's a product of of organizations like Alpha Kappa Alpha um, that have always been, as I said before, deeply connected with the freedom dreams of, of Black folks, and and we're proud of her. And, and and again, she represents the best of of, of what HBCUs can and should be doing. And, and I hope that moving forward, we'll see more Kamala Harris's, we'll see more Stacey Abrams, we'll see more Raphael War Warnock's. Again, all products of HBCUs, all now standing on, on the cusp of, of what we can only hope is, is a new a new day politically within this country. And still HBCUs as relevant, as necessary, as they've always been for that to happen. Uh, I am, I'm probably older than you. I am 54. And when I graduated from high school in 85, especially growing up like I did in Nashville, uh, we all grew up uh, at Fisk and Tennessee State. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where we lived. Right. Um, so some of us were like, well, we don't have to go to HBCU. Um, and there was a generation of us that felt like our parents went to HBCUs. We can go to some of the big white universities. All right. But I strongly feel um, that wasn't the best thing for all of us. And I think even now, more than ever before, Dr. Favors, this generation coming along, my son's 18. And I've been saying it to parents. We need to get our kids back in these HBCUs because because what our parents did and grandparents, their experience, as critical as that was, and they gave us a lot of that knowledge. 
our separation, some of us from HBCUs, um, necessitates our kids and our grandkids going back. All right. And, and getting re, you know, rerouted. And I mean, we're seeing we're seeing what's happening. In a lot of these white universities, PWIs and, and the, the racism that still exists there. Um, and let's face it. Most of those who are successful in the professional world and academic world and the legal world and the Ph.D. world still are produced primarily by HBCU. So, folks, let us not forsake our HBCUs. And I frankly believe that if you have any doubt about that, this book will wake you up and inspire you <laughs> to realize the importance. Um, and there's nothing like an HBCU experience. When my son was a baseball recruit. And, you know, the question was, and like a lot of these college athletes, do you do, be sure you go to a school? The, the school he finally ended up at that recruited him. The coach asked this. He would ask his be sure you go to a school. Whose homecoming you would want to go back to every year. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So so and can't do that everywhere. Now, a whole lot of folks go to these other schools. Now, you ain't going to that homecoming, right. but, but you want to go to school where you can go back to homecoming. So we're coming home, folks. Look, we really want to encourage you to check this book out. Shelter in a time of storm. How black colleges fostered generations of leadership and activism. What's the next project you're working on, my brother? So the next project, I'm moving away from from the education field and I'm looking at an 1898 mention case um, of Frazier Baker, uh, who was a black postmaster in Lake City, South Carolina, uh, who, along with his one year old daughter, I repeat, his one-year-old daughter um, were lynched uh, in 1898. Uh, and it sparked a federal trial, actually, um, because he was a black postmaster. Um, so the federal government gets involved. There's a, a massive trial that comes out of this. Um, it really kind of becomes a, a, a catalyst for the early civil rights movement. Um, but I'm writing a, a book on that. But I'm also looking at the legacy of whiteness uh, and, and how whiteness played a role. Because again, why is this man lynched? Right? This man is lynched because he represented black excellence. He, he represented um, uh, uh, the idea of black uplift, all of which a number of whites in 1898 felt was a threat to, to, their, to the currency of, of whiteness itself uh, and to the power of whiteness itself. And I think that there's a lesson in that, there's a historical lesson in that, but I also think there's a contemporary lesson in that too, Mark. Absolutely. That is a lesson. We look forward to that, too, my brother. Thank you uh, for this, folks. Again, uh, check it out. Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. Again, we'll be focusing on this subject of HBCUs throughout Black History Month. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Jelani M. Favors. And once again, folks, uh, we wish you all a happy Black History Month. Thanks for having me, Mark. Take care. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.